0: Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 175th edition. I'm Stefan Christoph. Thanks for tuning in. And on the show this week, I spoke with Mallory Nodel. Mallory is at the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C., who has for years been involved in Internet justice work. This conversation came about through some exchanges I had with Mallory on the importance of highlighting both the infrastructure of the Internet and critiquing through fact the actual lack of reach in a lot of structural ways of tech giants. There's a cultural narrative that really identifies tech giants as occupying the entirety of, of the Internet. And and when you get into a conversation about the both the history of the Internet but also the infrastructure of communications, A lot of the the key elements still rely on open source software and cooperative models. In thinking about where the internet's going, I think underlining this history is really critical. Um, the, the popular and collective history that shaped a lot of the essential infrastructural elements of the internet. You know, in the conversation, we talk about this idea of the maintainers versus the inventors, right? So we often, in shorthand, talk about a few select elite people when thinking about the existence of the internet today. However, there are millions of people who are maintaining and developing the structural communications of the internet. That creates a lot of possibility for democratic access and, and also demanding, in a sense, deeper democratic participation. All of this is not to say that there isn't a major threat to um, the internet as an open space when it comes to the increasing influence of tech giants. Also, we talk about a really important framework for communications online, which is open platforms. We talk about the history of the Global Indie Media Project and the ways that the open publishing and community-based information sharing that was central to Indie Media in a lot of ways was adopted, co-opted and commodified by social media tech giants. So thinking also about the ways that popular processes of organizing and actually rooted in activism has a profound cultural influence on how the internet exists today. Here's my conversation with Mallory Nodal for Free City Radio. Often there's not a connection made between you know questions of democratic process and tech companies. Um, it's changing, it's shifting a bit. Um, But I know that a lot of your work revolves around, like, creating structures for public access around, you know, the policies of corporations that are shaping significant parts of our daily lives, in terms of communications, in terms of social relations. Um, And, you know, the infrastructure of communications of these tech giants is having a huge impact. So... I think it's a really great opportunity to speak with you, Um, and so I'd love to get into various issues, but maybe first, if you could first um, introduce yourself and share a bit about your work, um, broadly speaking, and how it relates to these points.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's so nice to talk after all this time. Um, I'm now at the Center for Democracy and Technology based in Washington, D.C., where I'm the chief technologist, um, but CDT doesn't really build any software. So I'm the chief technologist in the sense that I am the primary advisor across the organization on our tech policy, where that policy is informed by technical underpinning. Any underpinnings. Um, that sort of technological expertise can sometimes help our advocacy be better. Um, and then in addition to that, I then spend my time not in policy spaces, but actually in technical spaces, specifically global internet standard setting, where I am sort of the opposite, I serve the opposite function. I try to bring in the human rights or social justice perspective on um, design choices that have been made um, across the internet throughout its um, both protocol. Uh, layers all the way up to the web layer, um, in an effort to ensure, you know, those, um, those considerations are present. And I sit on a variety of, of boards and other kinds of, um, initiatives as a participating member, um, with this perspective, because I think the technology and the, um, so social aspects, um, can be can be really instructive for a lot of the sort of ongoing struggles we have um, across the world. But I think to your, like one of the things too that um, I find really interesting about how you framed this issue, stemming from an accountability structure, a sort of check and balance and governance of these corporate spaces as a really insightful framing because what has happened um, in in parallel to, or maybe there's a relation a causal relationship there with the rise of internet communications is also this massive privatization of government services. And increasingly those government services are deployed or underpinned by technology. And so while yes, these are corporates, they're anti-competitive, they're consolidated. They have way too much power. At the same time, governments have sort of given them that power. So governments, which are the typically accountable democratic um, function for a lot of these services, are no longer there as the responsible sort of implementing party. We're increasingly having to go to big tech companies to you know, deal with like lack of social services or lack of accountability or financial concerns, health concerns, etc. Um, So I find that, yeah, today more than ever, we have to somehow hold um, big tech companies accountable. And one of the ways I think that has worked a bit in my view is to go to the global internet governance level and try to look at these open standards processes, the global technical community, and try to influence the actual design of technologies in those spaces.
0: Okay, so there's a lot of intersecting points there. Thanks so much for going over all of that. Um, Maybe first, let's address what you said about the infrastructure of the Internet, Um, like the the actual sort of infrastructure... um, of the internet, I think there's a perception that tech giants own that. And that's not true. On a sort of structural, like conceptual level, that's not, the power doesn't rest in one place. I know it's becoming increasingly centralized, but I think that might be a refreshing point for people to understand.
1: Definitely. You are completely right that um, even I forget this sometimes, that the consolidation by massive tech companies is not inevitable. And in fact, the way the internet was designed was intentionally to move away from this sort of um, centralized control. So the internet has some really core functions. I, I've written a book about how this works, and it isn't so complicated that one can't write a short book about it, but it's complicated enough that we can't take for granted that everybody understands what comprises the internet, what does it mean technologically. Um, the main functions are really naming and numbering, being able to get from a URL like wikipedia.org to the service that is hosting that website with an IP address. So naming and numbering is super function is super important. That's decentralized in the sense that you can buy a domain from a lot of different places. You can host your server in a lot of different places as well. And the connection there between you know, the the domain you bought and the service that you're hosting, um, you can make yourself. This is an open source, open, um, I guess, specification, right, that is widely implemented. Um, Another core function of the internet is routing. So the ways in which these services or these servers, I guess, are spread around the world and where a one packet gets from you to the thing you're requesting and back again, that packet gets routed around, you know, the world from one from one computer to another. The routing function also is built on uh, a specification um, that is open; anyone can implement. It's a little. It gets a little bit consolidated at this level because running a massive exchange point, which is one of these big servers that just deals with a lot of these kinds of packets, gets very expensive. So, this is where it you see a little bit more consolidation um, in, in the market, but still it's meant to be totally decentralized. And if I send a packet from my house to your house, it's going to arrive and it's going to arrive very relatively safely. And it doesn't much matter who sees the packet in the middle because of the way the routing is done. It's very, very, um, you know, the details don't matter a and B the points a and B matter. Um, another then function obviously is the, um, you know, the physical infrastructure. That's a little bit more consolidated, too, than even routing, because now we're talking about undersea cables, we're talking about fiber under the ground, we're talking about um, cellular base stations. Um, and so ISPs, again, really tend to control this infrastructure. Um, but they, again, like the things that build and construct them, everything from the hardware all the way up to the software that is running on them is open standards. And they are, the hardware is discussed in a standards body. Um, the, you know, the, the logical layer, the networking layer, all of that is discussed in, in global standards bodies. And that is one key way that it all interoperates, no matter who built it, what company built it, what company bought it, what company implemented it, who the subscribers are, what uh, jurisdiction they live in, it all works together. And so there's no reason why it has to be a consolidated market. But I think we do witness, in the case of the internet, sort of tragedy of the commons, or sort of like uh, another metaphor I hear people use is a tyranny of structurelessness. Like, the, you know, this open, decentralized design, in its way, very radical. Um, has also allowed for abuse in the sense that large companies keep getting larger and they are acting in anti-competitive ways, um, locking people into services, vertically integrating, et cetera, et cetera. And this has led to the situation we have now um, where we do kind of list off the same number of companies over and over again that seem to be causing all these problems but it need not be that way and there still are in every single layer i've mentioned even the infrastructure layer there are still um, entities running those services and incorporated and part of the game that are not these big companies they're independent they're autonomous they're serving their communities we just need more of them
0: i i think of this critique of the ways that industrialization has been framed in a lot of historical readings around this idea of the inventors and the focus on the single, usually men, Western European men, who had invented a concept or a piece of machinery or a mode of production. But then there's the maintainers and the people who sustain these processes and adapt these processes to different workplaces, different social environments and with the internet we're again seeing at least on a cultural level this sort of articulation of the idea that the entire internet revolves around a few brilliant inventors in quotations, whereas the infrastructure, as you pointed out, a lot of it is built through cooperative processes. And also there are mechanisms for standards that have been developed that I think a lot of people forget. Um, So maybe you could contrast the sort of reality of like both the, the, the internet as a process that was developed through a lot of cooperative collective work, as opposed to the cultural landscape and mainstream spaces that defines this communication space increasingly as um only uh driven by a few quote unquote inventors or like heads of companies.
1: Completely. I um I really appreciate this too because it also our view that only these big tech companies or these innovators are the ones responsible for the latest you know modernization of this and that. It's also kind of a boring story. It's it's really to me like not that interesting um, for billionaires to create stuff. Like I mean, of course billionaires are going to create stuff, but or, or they're going to have initiatives that their names are on. I wouldn't give them the credit of creating anything actually. But the but this is true about the internet. So I was part for um, about six years of an organization called the Association for Progressive Communications that has been around since the late 80s. And they were um, plugging things into the wall and and connecting communities before anybody else was. They they started out as a consortium of about five organizations that this is pre-internet days, were trying to figure out how to bring internet to their communities. And these were not in North America for the most part. There was a founding member in California There was one in Mexico, but then there was founding members in South Africa, Australia, you know, and and the UK. And actually, in fact, the um, member in California, um, IGC, and um, Laneta in Mexico were the first two groups to connect the U.S. and Mexico. They were APC members. These were activists that were trying to figure out this new technology Um, because it was good for social movements, because it was the new um, thing. It was built with this decentralized technology so they could go ahead and try it out and do it. Other APC members were integral in bringing the Internet to Cuba, for example. Um, And fast forward, right, some 30 years or whatever, um, going on 40 years, I think, by my count. um, We still actually have that today. There are members of this group, the APC, again, that are community networks, that are still trying to access um, what's called like the last mile. Um, this is a term that I think centers ISPs a little bit too much, saying that you know the ISPs need to be able to reach um, everyone, and that sort of last mile of either fiber or any kind of access is the hardest one. Um, and so, community networks are sort of the solution where. Folks are actually really doing their best to fund using community funds, community cooperation, um, access to a backbone to the rest of the internet or some kind of other um, scheme such as like, you know, mobile telecommunications just so that they can get some form of access. We're talking about, you know, jungle jungles, places that are hard to reach um, where it's, it's almost also physically challenging. There are some mountainous regions in the Mediterranean, for example, that like, ISPs just can't serve because it's, it's complicated. Um, so I think that these are the interesting stories. These are the interesting problems that people are solving because they have more constraints. They have basically zero market uh, gain, right? Nobody's making money off the last mile. Nobody's making money off of poor communities' internet access. This is precisely why the ISPs have for decades promised to bring access to everyone, but have failed to because they can't incentivize it from a capitalist perspective. Um, And so that's where the interesting stuff is still happening. It's where the Internet began, and I think it's where it's going. Because when I'm sitting in meetings or sessions where people are talking about um, standardization or new technology that's emerging... And they're coming. Those proposals are by and large coming from large companies. They're coming from ISPs that have coverage all over entire continents, um, from from over the top services or from service providers that do you know search, web search, or email or web hosting. They have servers in every country all around the world. I don't think that the things they're developing are all that particularly interesting, simply because their problems are not interesting. They they have all of these resources. They have virtually no constraints. And they're also building their tools for people in in privileged places that think of the internet as that will make their lives frictionless. So they're trying to solve a kind of frictionlessness for society that is just not the experience of a lot of people on this planet, where they're not asking technology to be frictionless. In fact, their experiences with technology might even be pretty negative, where it's a surveillance mechanism, where it's something that prevents them from crossing borders, where you know it's a hurdle that they have to jump over to get social services. And, and so their experience with the reason why they need connectivity is very, very different. They need it to simply survive, or they um, hopefully also will need it for commercial reasons or other kinds of Things that just, I think, are fundamentally different from the ways that we think about, you know, social media or other kinds of reasons people want to get online. And so the, the motivations are different. The constraints are really different. And so I really love to think about the folks who are still, you know, plugging things into the wall, um, really trying to solve the, these hard problems, really trying to reach um, communities that are driven to get this kind of connectivity um, by things other than profit. And I think that is sort of where I like the rooms that I want to be in, is where those conversations are happening.
0: Thanks for sharing all of that. Okay, so you mentioned a bunch of points, Sarah, and thank you. Um, you're also opening a window to a much more meaningful um, cultural framework to understand where the internet is today. And I think that's very important. Um, so thanks for that. Um, Can you um, maybe going to sort of some of the more problematics of, you know, these giant companies that really control a a lot of the cultural narrative? And I think that this is a point that you could address and not a lot of people could, um, is sort of the ways that these companies actually took a lot of communications processes that, developed an activism and then use those and commodify them like you know spaces like indie media or um you know these uh, processes of like grassroots communication outside of corporate media that really um were some of the first to develop um an alternative communication that in a lot of ways was commodified by these companies. I don't think a lot of people understand this story.
1: You're right about indie media. That's the first thing I thought of when you started asking this question. Um, and, and the other one that I would invoke, although I hesitate to do this because it's such a weird, fraught word now, is this idea of disruption that like these big tech companies are somehow going to disrupt existing markets. And I think the current feeling amongst a lot of communities I'm paying attention to is that is really an affront to um, like stable um, blue-collar jobs and has really been disruptive in unwanted ways. Um, so that's another one where I think, you know, maybe activists in the early days of the Internet wanted to disrupt things that felt very broken because there was a monopoly on those different kinds of monopolies, um, different kinds of power structures that seemed difficult to surmount and to change. And so the best way that activists could identify to, you know, improve situation for most people was to try to disrupt them, to try to create an alternative, a completely new space or version of the old thing that would work better. I mean, I think maybe Wikipedia could be one example where um, Wikipedia, uh, fortunately, is still in sort of its same form as it started out in. Um, We should not take that for granted, by the way, um, because many things that started out in that era do not anymore exist. But, you know, Wikipedia was this idea that we can write our own history, collectively, humanity, can come together and can start documenting um, its history as it's being written. And it's quite an impressive um, artifact that has sort of replaced a monopoly on encyclopedias and other things. It's like a really great example. Um, but going back to indie media, um, this is really fundamental to the way that I understand, um, you know, social media, but also, as you mentioned, the way that, you uh, capitalism in this era of, quote, disruption for new markets purposes has gotten it all wrong and sort of distracted us from our original goals. So, you know, in the early, well, late 1990s and early 2000s, folks were increasingly using the internet for um, organizing protests. And this is kind of where indie media comes in because it's trying to document, not just document these protests, but also using their websites and their mailing lists as a way of uh, letting folks know about actions and events and things that are coming up. So you could go on an indie media website, and they were also really local, like hyper-local collectives. Um, In the biggest cities in the world, there was an indie media collective for sure. Uh, And you could go on these websites, you could post your event, you could then You know, have the event. You could blog it, or we didn't call it blogging, but you could write about it later. You could upload that. You could upload a video about it if you wanted to, and it became a source of news. It became democratic news sharing. And when I describe this, if I were to sort of take out all of these sort of um, you know era markers, you would think, well, this is social media, right? This is what we use um, a variety of different corporate social media to do now, Uh, and that is actually, in fact. 100% true. I think that the indie media did democratize this. Uh, There are still indie media projects around the world that run. Not all of them are super strong. A lot of them aren't, um, in fact, active anymore. But that is really what generated the sort of corporate realization that you can, the people interested in sharing this, that there is now a sort of altruistic through line where you can talk about democracy um, and you can talk about civic uh, activity online. Um, and I do want to say that, you know, while I'm, I think it's great to have been part of indie media to see this sort of travel through and the mainstream through social media, I also do want to point out, I think more than any time in my uh, lifetime anyway, in recent history, that um, we have such a low amount of civic um, like the civic space is so eroded. We have such a low amount of participation in civics in terms of protests and sort of things. I know that protests still happen. I just am thinking back to those days when we were using indie media. We had, um, you know, the WTO protests, Battle for Seattle. We had the World Social Forums that would bring together, Not we're not talking like tens of thousands of people. We're talking about like hundreds of thousands of people We don't see that scale anymore. And I think um, there's a relationship there. Probably a lot of scholars have talked about this. In fact, I know some have um, of the way that we've offloaded a lot of this function online and that offline has eroded. And in fact, then Internet technology and digital technology has helped the state control offline uh, civic space a lot easier. So that all sort of contributes to the current situation we're in.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak today.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was a really good chat. I appreciate you.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Mallory Nodel, who is at the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much to Mallory for being on the show today. I think a lot of the points of this conversation are really critical to consider when we think about cultural understandings of how the Internet exists today both in terms of the corporate influence but also unpacking and decoding the fact that a lot of key infrastructural elements of the internet remain a process that is maintained by cooperative work and are open source this is essential and i think the point that was discussed also about the activist origins of open publishing and you know information sharing on a community based level through projects like indie media and how that impacted and influenced the social media world today is really important to consider. Thanks so much for tuning in to another edition of Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. We air weekly on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays. CGLO 1690 a.m also in GeoGeorge, Montreal on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays. CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays. CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, BC on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m. And now as well on Met Radio, 12:80 a.m. in Toronto at 5:30 a.m. on Fridays. You can find our archives at soundcloudcom radio and look us up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. just search Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you next week.